You're listening to Warwick Radio Online. The voice of Warwick, Rhode Island. Hello, this is Dr. Tom Shaker, radio DJ, documentary filmmaker, and Warwick History Quiz Show MC with a tasty slice of Rhode Island history for you. Thank you to Warwick Radio for inviting me to share this tale. So settle in, get comfortable, and get ready for the story of the Celebrity Club. Imagine living in a small state, in a small capital city, in a small neighborhood where the best musical acts available in the world came to play in a small club. Legendary acts like Louis Armstrong, Fats Domino, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, the list is endless. Hard to believe, right? Well, here's an interview with none other than Louis Armstrong about appearing at the Celebrity Club. Tell me something, how are you, how are you enjoying your gig at the Celebrity Club? Oh, man, it's jumping. With really all. having a ball? Yeah, last night, you know, one of the worst nights. Yeah. I'm in an Italian place, back, and everybody's just continuing to relax and have the ball and enjoying it. music. Well, the amazing thing about it is that when you play the Celebrity Club, we see a lot of new faces there that uh, haven't been there in a long, long time. I think you're responsible for bringing in more new faces than almost any other attraction that's played there. Yeah. And that's well, something... I, I wouldn't know, you know. Well, we can judge. But I know it, every time we come, we have nice reception, appreciation. Well, they certainly dig you the most. And they wait, they don't get impatient. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that cat is the coolest. Louis Armstrong, the all-stars. Remember, at Rhode Island's home of big-name jazz attractions, the Celebrity Club, located at 5456 Randall Street, all roads whether they're plowed or not, lead to the Celebrity Club tonight and any night this week. Well, old Satchmo himself, Pops Louis Armstrong, a grand guy, a wonderful, wonderful person, a guy who's made a big contribution to jazz, currently appearing at the Celebrity. And here's the kicker. This small club in this small neighborhood, in this small capital city, in this small state, was also the first integrated music club in New England, where blacks and whites could sit in the same room and listen to the finest jazz and R&B music this country had to offer. Well, if you lived in Rhode Island in the 1950s, you might have gone down to the Randall Square neighborhood in Providence and visited the Celebrity Club, where it all happened. Hi, I'm Tom Shaker, and years ago, when I started talking with Rhode Island jazz musicians about their playing days back in the 40s and 50s, they all mentioned this mythical club where they saw and played with these fabled acts. Yet the more research we did, we couldn't find much information about the place. To me, it's a story that sounded incredible and inspiring. Why wasn't Providence and Rhode Island bragging about this amazing story? A story that had to be told. So a few years back, Norm Grant and I made what became an award-winning documentary called Do It Man, The Story of the Celebrity Club. I'd like to share that story with you now in this podcast. And if you've never heard of the Celebrity Club, man, you need to.
And while the club is highly regarded and remembered by Rhode Islanders of a certain age, its story is timeless and its message is an important one. We'll hear from the musicians that played there, the staff that worked there, and most importantly, the folks who went there week after week to hear the best in American jazz and R&B. Okay, you ready? Let's do it, man. Post-World War II America was like no other. Unemployment was at an all-time low, buying at an all-time high. People were living in new homes, driving new cars. Folks had the money to hit the road and see America, go to the movies, see a show. Cities were prospering with new businesses, new neighborhoods, and new families. And while the civil rights movement was gaining momentum, it would be quite a while until its efforts were felt by African Americans all over the country. Prejudice and segregation were still outwardly visible in the South, and more north of the Mason-Dixon line, they were more subtle. In southern states, segregation was explicit with signs like whites only or blacks only, out in plain sight. In the north, it was more implied. People would just say, oh, I couldn't go there, or they're not allowed in. In Rhode Island in the late 1940s and 50s, life was no different, but there were exceptions, namely the Celebrity Club. In this first clip from the film, we'll hear from former Celebrity Club patron Elizabeth Pegg, jazz educator Lloyd Kaplan, band leader and writer John Worsley, sax player Ed Zaretsky, and Celebrity Club historian Jason McGill. We'd go out and have a few drinks and we'd have dinner and then we'd say, okay, where are we going this evening? Well, where else? We're going down to the Celebrity Club, you know, because that was the only club, really, that that was really uh, great. It had been rated by Metronome Magazine as the fourth best jazz club in the entire North America. The Celebrity Club was um, a mixed racial club. They called it a salt and pepper club, and it was down where the Mathematics Society is now across from the Providence Marriott in Randall Square. And Paul Filippi owned it. Paul Filippi was a doorman at the Crown Hotel. But he had this business sense. There weren't a lot of places in Providence where colored folks would go to hear live music. Paul Filippi, he said that he started it because he had a lot of black friends and he realized that if they wanted to go out to eat, they were going to Boston. Mostly when they went, when they went to Barton's Hall, you know, up in West Elmore, they went to Robinson's Hall or the Swedish Workmen's Hall down there on Pine Street, all these, all these various odd fellas hall. It was usually Mose Johnson plunking on the piano, okay? Or Bubby McKay and his big band from time to time, whenever they could get him when he was sober. Uh, or Nate when he took over. And so they're hearing the same people over and over and over. Paul knew this. There wasn't any restaurant or supper club that they felt comfortable going to in Providence. Music, food, and here's a community of people that all they do is go to work, come home, eat, sleep, look for Friday night and Saturday night, go out and party, go to church on Sunday, and start the cycle all over again. He saw this. He knew this. He saw it. That was Dr. Ed Coates, a wonderful musician who grew up going to the Celebrity Club. We'll hear from him again soon. 
Celebrity club owner Paul Filippi was an Italian-American who worked his way through the ranks as a hotel doorman to club owner, which anyone who's ever worked in those businesses will tell you is a tough road to travel, and trying to open a successful nightclub welcoming both blacks and whites was pretty much unheard of in that day and age. But Paul Filippi decided it was time. As I mentioned earlier, while racism seemed subtler in the Northeast, it certainly existed in very concrete ways. The black acts that played the celebrity club found it hard to find places to stay, so Paul made the rooms he had available and put up some of the band members on the second floor of the club. Let's hear again uh, from folks like George Azevedo and Ed Coates, reminiscing about Shining Shoes as a kid outside the hotels, along with former celebrity club MC Steve Cass and local musicians Randy Ash and Art Hazard. It was pretty hard to get hotel room. Paul would would have a place upstairs where he fixed for the musicians or the entertainers, you know? I, I didn't do a lot of shining up in front of the Metropolitan Theater because it wasn't very good business up that far. It was too far up, you know? You had to be kind of down. So I hung around places like the Mohegan Hotel, the Narragansett Hotel, the Abbott Hotel, the Biltmore, you know. These were all down Matheson Street, all in those areas. Some major stars were not allowed to stay at the Biltmore. Just they would walk in and the place would be full and sorry. I knew that these bands were coming through because the whole entire Negro community knew when these bands were coming through here. But I'd never seen them go in these hotels. Never. At that time, the hotels that would, uh, allow blacks into them was uh, the Capitol Hotel, which wasn't a very nice hotel to speak of, if I may say. And the Crown Hotel did open their doors more willingly. So certainly having uh, accommodations upstairs for the musicians uh, was quite the thing. And since these great acts stayed for week-long engagements, that's right, week-long, they developed relationships with people in Providence, sometimes staying at their house while they played at the Celebrity Club. Imagine bumping into Sammy Davis Jr. or Ella Fitzgerald on the sidewalks of Providence. Wow. In fact, we heard a story from one person who grew up across the street from the club that one afternoon a man walked out of the Celebrity Club over to their backyard where he and his sister were playing. The man said hi and ended up singing the song Mona Lisa to them. That man, you may have guessed, turned out to be Nat King Cole. Wow. As they did in the entire state of Rhode Island, older musicians mentored younger ones. When it came to the celebrity club, it was no different. Sax player Art Hazard tells a wonderful story about growing up, playing at the celebrity club, and the power of mentoring. Randy and I, it was great because having the musicians uh, staying right there where they played and they practiced on a regular basis, we were able to come right from school, grab our horns, up the stairs to the second floor in the celebrity club, knocking on their doors, and here we are. I mean, we bugged them musicians. They showed us music, we practiced, but then they also gave us guidance. Max Roach was playing there. This particular night, we were the intermission band as they took their break, we would play. And I remember that evening after the gig was over, uh, Sonny Rawls was playing with uh, Max at the time, and he came out and he said, told me I had great potential. 
Well, at 14, I didn't quite know what that was, but I all I know, it didn't sound like a cuss word. And when I went home, I couldn't get home fast enough to look in the dictionary and see what potential meant. And it was, I said, oh, you know, that was kind of inspiring for me. I do remember that. What a great story. Now, being nestled between New York City and Boston, Providence was in a sweet spot for so many big-name artists of the day who were touring. I bet Paul Filippi knew that when he opened the club. He also knew that the audience was there, but he took a big chance on making this all work. As he continued to book incredible acts, the club and its reputation grew. It became a mainstay for so many acts to return to year after year. And for a partial who's who on that list, we'll hear from writer Charles Drago, Duke Belair, Steve Cass, Ed Coates, and Cliff Montero. He was able to attract the real superstars of the music at the time. And we can run down that list, and it's, it's just a dream lineup that he could bring there. Armstrong, Ellington, Parker, Basie, Holiday, Vaughn, Fitzgerald, Clifford Brown, Max Roach, they're all there. All of a sudden, he started booking these huge acts. Jazz was riding so high at the time. He brought in Sarah Vaughan. Stan Getz. Billy Holiday. Bo Diddley, of course. Eddie James. A guy named Sammy Davis Jr. Bill Doggett. Clyde McFadder. He brought in Count Basie's band. Louis Armstrong. Well, Miles Davis. He was bringing in the Red Pride Sox, the Winoni Harris. Ella Fitzgerald. Chris Conner, great jazz singer. A big J McNeely. Willis Gator Tail Jackson. Uh, Annette Cobb. Maynard Ferguson. I mean, Jackie Wilson. He brought in Carmen McRae. Dakota Stanton. Lionel Hampton's orchestra. I mean, you name it. He was bringing in rhythm and blues stuff that you, you wouldn't believe. Duke Ellington. I mean, all of them. I remember the Flamingos, and I remember uh, the Cadillacs. And, of course, Slim Gaylord played guitar. He was crazy, out of his mind. What an amazing list. And the people followed from all over Rhode Island and New England and beyond. This really sort of unlikely small club just rose to the top and people from all the suburbs started coming in. Is there an act you wish you had seen at the Celebrity Club? All of them, every, I'm not, every one of them I wish I had seen. I wish I were old enough to, no, I don't wish I were old enough. I just wish they would come back. I mean, when you think of the names that were there, yeah. I mean, Ray God, Charles. Ray Charles, uh, um, uh, God, Fats Domino, uh, I think even Tony Bennett. Yeah. There were white musicians that performed there also. Yeah. Um, there were, uh, I mean, just every name you could possibly imagine. In other words, if, you, if it was a rite of passage, I guess if you didn't go to a celebrity club, you weren't anything. The biggies, like Little Richard. Um, I didn't see him at Celebrity Club. I saw him at Paul Flippy's brother's place called The Downbeat uh, on the west side because he was not quite ready for Celebrity Club. Celebrity Club was the top black groups. And uh, Downbeat got almost there, but not quite. Um, the Celebrity Club was the top place. You made it to the Celebrity Club, you were there. That was civil rights activist Cliff Montero reminiscing about his younger days and many hours spent listening to great music acts in Providence. We also heard from the ex-mayor of Providence, of course, Buddy Cianci, weighing in on his take about the Celebrity Club. Now, Rhode Island musicians either backed all these artists up on their gigs at the club or played intermission sets between the main act sets. 
Out of this came so many lifelong relationships and musical friendships. Here's another great story, this time involving two of Rhode Island's best jazz players, Duke Belair and Bob Pettirudi, who got the dream of a lifetime sitting in to play bass for the legendary Duke Ellington Orchestra. Duke Ellington came in uh, for a week. It was seven nights, always seven nights. The bass player got stuck somewhere. And that was at the celebrity club? And we were playing re uh, Relief. It was me, Bob. And Ronnie Brown was the piano player. So Duke Ellington said, uh, uh, Jimmy Woody, uh, the bass player, missed the train. He's in Boston. And would you sit in for the f until he arrives? So I said, no. Bob didn't want to go. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you don't want to go? And he said, why not? I said, I don't play good enough to play in your band. So he coaxed me, and uh, Duke Belair said, do it, man. I said, just play, you know? He said, I'm not playing with Duke Ellington. <laughs> so I did, and I can still feel my knees knocking together. So, but it was very comfortable. Uh, it was easy. Uh, the band was so good, it was like uh, somebody leading a blind man. And it was just terrific experience. But Bob didn't want to do it, but he, he wound up doing it, and he did a hell of a job. So by the time I calmed down, the set was almost over. It was about an hour. And I look up, and there's Jimmy Woody just walking in. I said, oh, my fame is gone. I won't be able to play the next two sets. But anyway, it was a thrill. Oh, I love that story. It shows how humble and modest Rhode Island musicians are, but they are and always have been among the best in the country and the world. Speaking of Rhode Island musicians, the wonderful jazz vocalist Carol Sloan, who was born in Little Roadie, tells about how going to the celebrity club made a big impact on her life and career. And my boyfriend was a guitar player. Now he was nuts about a man named Barney Kessel. Barney Kessel, at that time, was the guitar player with Oscar Peterson's group, Oscar Peterson, Ray Brown, and Barney Kessel. And there was, I'll never forget, there was a sign outside, a, you know, a board tells you what's on. Oscar Peterson trio, Ray Brown, Barney Kessel. Extra added attraction, Sarah Vaughan. You know, now my teeth, my face fell out. I mean, I just, my jaw dropped because I couldn't believe I was actually going to see this woman as well. I couldn't believe the way she sounded. I wanted to see that sound come out of that face. We were so thrilled to be in the same room and listen to these people perform. When I got to know Oscar many years later, I'll tell you that story, he was the devil. But anyway, we, that's, we, we, were, we were treated with respect. We were not made to feel as if we were out of place in any way. And, you know, I think we nursed the Coca-Cola between us that night. But we were simply out of our tree to be able to hear these people perform. Now, sax player Randy Ash, who had a great group as a youngster, Randy and the Stompers, played the club many times. We met him at the site of the Celebrity Club in Randall Square, and he reminisced about those days and took us on a tour of how the club actually looked back then and described the Randall Square neighborhood. I get my personal joy from playing, but it's not the same as then because I had the camaraderie of all the cats. There's a lot of memories down here, a lot, a lot, a lot of memories, a lot of people. A lot of acts came through here. Lots. 
I miss it. Yeah. I do. I do miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say this, the right side of this tree is where the marquee was. Right. You had to go into the back to get into the main room. Gotcha. The front had a bar. Sometimes on Sunday they ran music up in the front bar. But, you know, the bigger act was always in the back room. As soon as you came into the back, right to the right was a bar. Right. And his brother Peter Filippi worked the bar mostly. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the bar there were steps that would go upstairs. The office was upstairs. And if somebody had to change or wanted to change, you could go upstairs there. The girls used it a lot for changing costumes sometimes for the dance acts. So with the musicians, when they started their show, would they come in through the audience, walk right up to the stage? Well, the ones that stayed upstairs, they came out of the building and came in. Yeah, because okay. they would come out of back entrance. Gotcha. Sometimes the band lady had the, the, the advantage of having the, the main room on the first floor. There was a main room <laughs> that they always said it was the band leader's room. And a lot of band leaders did, did take that room. But most of the guys, the side guys, stayed upstairs, you know. So this basically is uh, exactly where the uh, celebrity club was. And as we, if we were to work a little further, if you can see that number 20, yep. just next to that was the Carl Diggins record shop. Carl Henry, what we call Carl Diggins. As the junction there opens up, there was Al's Cafe. To the right was the, uh, the uh, NBC Lounge. So there was, uh, there was a lot of activity in this area here, uh, as far as clubs going that way. Uh, as you look up the street, there used to be a place called uh, Tip Top Diner, was there, it was in diner places. And one of the very earliest uh, rotisserie chickens places run in Providence by uh, a black man, uh, Calloway's, was on the left-hand side as well. Now, Randall's Square was the African-American neighborhood in Providence back then, before urban renewal and before University Heights. Cliff Montero talks about growing up in Randall's Square. When I was real young, I lived in Benefits on Randall's Square first. And um, uh, there was um, a multiracial neighborhood. Um, I lived in a neighborhood that... Everybody knew each other and was relatively friendly. There were some white people, but mostly black people. When I use the term, you must understand, black didn't become popular until 64, 65. We were Negroes or colored people or Cape Verdeans or Portuguese. In fact, Cape Verdeans were classified as Portuguese then. Um, so we'd say a colored neighborhood or a Negro neighborhood. Um, and Negro was not a negative term in that era. Um, but they interchanged Negro, call it neighborhood, but it was mostly Negro neighborhood. Randall Square had historically been this really sort of hopping neighborhood. There were clubs, there were, were stores, and just neighborhoods coming off from all around it. And that was the heart of the black community in Providence and the traditional African-American community. So it kind of sprang up right in the middle of there, and uh, Paul Filippi, you know, knew that that's the place to do it. That was a celebrity club historian Jason McGill. As the popularity of the celebrity club grew, the problems grew as well. Local authorities in Providence did not appreciate the integration that was happening at the club. Raids were happening more frequently. Jason McGill, Ed Coates, and Duke Belair explain. 
The police had many raids on the club, and to my knowledge, there was very little, if, if any, um, illegal activity actually attributed to, to anybody that was there. The cops were all over the place because the white folks were being catered to down there, and, I, and they're mixing with black folks, especially the white women. You know, that's a no-no. I don't care where you go in the United States during that time. There was a lot of uh, black and whites together, guys taking out chicks. And you had a lot of that going on, a lot of it going on. And chicks going out with guys, which you didn't see very much, but you saw it at the celebrity club. Some people say, oh, no, it was the drugs. There was, there, there was some drugs. There was a lot of drugs being passed around down there. I, I know a lot, of the, a lot of the runners. They raided the club, put all the white people in a paddy wagon, and brought them downtown to, to, the, uh, to the station. And then they were going to let them go, and they said, don't go back to that club. That's not where you belong, you know. And then and Paul Filippi said that they immediately went back to the club that night, you know, and it was sort of this little point of defiance. And with certain clubs in Rhode Island, there was the hint of a mob connection. Sax player George Azevedo and Steve Cass describe their experiences. I played mostly with Italian guys. <laughs> they ran they run the city, you know, and they had all the clubs. And because the guys that were running the clubs at that time were... Um, I think they were either related or worked for Raymond Patriarca, you know, at the time. You know, Raymond. One day, someone drove in and in the parking lot. He had a trailer truck full of stolen television sets. And he drove right into the parking lot, came into the club, and announced that he had these televisions that were pretty expensive back then. Uh, and that he had a whole bunch of television sets for sale for like 50 bucks or whatever it was. And the place emptied. <laughs> you see people leaving the parking lot carrying these big television <laughs> I mean, it was hysterical. It really was. Well, I'll tell you, I liked them. They were always very, very nice. These so-called, what you call them, bad boys or whatever, you know. Law and order was not the issue there. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be playing. We wouldn't play at all. There's no clubs, you know. So my hat's off to them. Paul Filippi has long been regarded as a legend among Rhode Island musicians for integrating the first nightclub. In such a small state, Paul knew everyone, and everyone knew Paul. Paul Filippi was a great club owner, and he was a great supporter of jazz. And he started a celebrity club. He had a club downtown Providence uh, that was more of a uh, popular nightclub. And uh, he had a place on Block Island. He was a great club owner. He was very cordial with people. He knew how to greet people. Uh, you know, he'd have one arm around their shoulder and he had the waitress over there. You know, he just made them feel welcome. Paul Filippi was a, a terrific guy to work for. I mean, one of the best. He'd get up on the bandstand and he'd read off all the names that were coming into the club in the future, whether they were coming in or not. He just had people going, ooh, and ah, and wow, you know. Paul was just very kind. Um, he was a charmer. He really was a charming man. Um, everybody was, he was good too. He was nice to everybody. He treated everybody the same. I think it was way before his time, and he knew what he was, you know, what he was going to be doing as far as racial, you know, racial. Yes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Here's Paul Filippi himself describing the first time integration in the celebrity club happened. But lo and behold, when I brought in Count Basie and followed up with a Nat King Cole and the Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton, now we have white people coming in. I'll never forget the first night. A white fellow comes home and sat at the bar. And he's looking around. And he ordered a beer. And he called me over. He said, you're the owner? I said, yes. He said, uh, my wife and friends are out in the car. I said, all right, if we come in? I said, certainly come in. That was the beginning of the interracial club that the celebrity club turned out to be. And here's Paul's son, Blake Filippi, remembering his dad. Well, I, I think the good thing about the free enterprise system is that your, your moral compass can actually coincide with a sound business plan. And that was his. Um, of course, like any person who opens a business, he did it to make money. But he did it in a way that reflected his social values. And you know, like any good businessman, he saw a, a demand and a need, and he filled it. And he always said to me that everybody's money is the same color. A lot of his friends he grew up with didn't like what he was doing. And you know, he had told me that some friends that he'd had for years, his lifelong friends, stopped being his friends because he was mixing black and white people together. And I remember being probably nine or 10 and you know, really understanding the significance of it when we were driving through province, I think, and my father saw a black man that he was friends with and they hadn't seen each other in 30 or 40 years. And he stopped and you know, said, the gentleman's name and the guy came over and he was just on the verge of tears and he was he just went on and on about like what my father did and how brave he was and just these words that kept coming out and it was the way the man was speaking i think not as much as what he was saying he was you know on the verge of tears just like of happiness to see my dad and and with gratitude as the late 1950s approached paul found himself struggling Routine police raids cut down on his clientele, and urban renewal was happening, with plans for Route 95 to split the city in half and raise the Randall Square neighborhood. And music was changing as well. Rock and roll was starting to be all the rage, and would soon leave jazz and R&B in its rearview mirror. Big review concerts and auditoriums would be in fashion, not small intimate music clubs where the audience was as much a part of the show as the musicians. Filippi sold the club in 1958, where it continued on for a few years under new ownership, then closed permanently. Ed Coates remembers. It wasn't a big event. It closed the same way it opened. They had a, they had a small rhythm and blues group in there. And I just happened to bump into the guys, a guy named Black Magic. I, I, uh, I, he just said, hey, the slip the club close. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, yeah, we did a gig down there last week, Saturday and Sunday. He said, they told us that uh, that was it. So many Rhode Islanders have wonderful memories of the Celebrity Club that over the years there would be remembering the Celebrity Club nights that drew huge crowds to honor not only the club, but its owner, Paul Filippi, and the great music he brought to Providence. More importantly was the legacy of this great club and its message to future generations of Rhode Islanders, that the power of music can bring us together in good times and bad, 
and overcome prejudice and racism and change people's ideas about society. And the message that one person can make a difference. Without Paul Filippi's courage, morals, and good business sense, the Celebrity Club would have been just another nightclub. But there he was, night after night, year after year, welcoming everyone regardless of their color. We seem to hear so many stories of racial injustice that it's so nice to hear this story, one that Rhode Islanders can be extremely thankful for and proud of. Well, until next time, this is Dr. Tom Shaker. This episode was produced by me, and I'd like to thank WICN 90.5 and online at WICN.org for their production facilities. And of course, many thanks to Warwick Radio. Thanks for listening, and keep on swinging. You're listening to Warwick Radio Online. The voice of Warwick, Rhode Island.